Reese's Pieces. Reese's Pieces. Definitely not Reese's Pieces. <laughs> Reese's Reese's Pieces. Well, I forever I thought it was Reese's Pieces. But it's just pieces. spelled pieces. But I, like it just looks like the word I mean, I pieces. Guess, I, I just watched a commercial though. It's Reese's Okay, so pieces. yeah, so you're walking down the street, you're trick-or-treating. Someone says, hey, you want a Reese cup? You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations. You'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome in to Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this. You'll be the most interesting person at the party. On this edition of Commute, product placement is commonplace these days. Whether it be TV shows, movies, you name it. If a brand can get exposure from getting its product some screen time, it's typically a great idea. How great is it, you ask? Just ask Reese's Pieces. We've all seen movies and shows that take place in a home, but have you ever wondered if someone actually lives there? Usually the answer is yes, and usually that person is making a lot of money renting out their home. But how much, and are there downsides? We did the research for you. A popular mantra in therapy is that you are not your thoughts. But are you your intentions? All of that on this episode of Commute. Let's get it. All right, Jay, my man. Now, now somehow, and maybe it's because many of the topics that we find interesting come from our childhood, or at least our lifetime, the movie E.T., the extraterrestrial, has come up on Commute multiple times through our now nearly 40 episodes. In fact, if you're new to the show, or if you just happen to miss it, check out episode number 22. We talk about the worst video game of all time, which coincidentally just happens to be E.T., the video game for the Atari. Now, Jay, I can't recall, even though we've talked about this so much, what is your opinion on E.T.? It just kind of hit me at a weird time. Like, I've come to appreciate it more as an adult, but whenever I watched it for the first time and I was young... I just didn't really take to the character of E.T. that much. He just kind of like freaked me out a little bit. Just, uh, (laughs) yeah. And, uh, you know, it just, just wasn't ready for it yet. Well, regardless of personal opinion, Jay, E.T. is regarded as a cinematic masterpiece, a critical and commercial success. When it came out in 1982, the movie still sits inside the top 15 on the inflation-adjusted all-time highest-grossing film list. E.T. was, and still is, so popular and important as a film, it was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry for being, and I quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. So, Jay, it's important to understand the massive impact of E.T. to grasp how fascinating this story within the story is. So, if you've seen E.T., you are aware that the delicious candy, Reese's Pieces, plays a huge role in the film. The tiny candies were used by the human lead of the movie, a boy named Elliot, to lure E.T. out of hiding. But while Reese's Pieces are fantastic... They weren't the film's first choice for this iconic product placement. 
While product placement in general is all over both television shows and movies today, it was pretty rare in the early 80s. So when the time came to find the right candy for this important movie plot point, the production company behind E.T., Amblin Productions, first approached the Mars Company, the famous candy company behind M&M's, about a possible partnership for the movie. Inexplicably, Jay, Mars said no. Now, while Mars has never made a formal statement about the failed deal, most insiders believe that it was a combination of a couple of things. A mixture of Mars not liking the script, Mars thinking that the film would bomb and hurt its brand, and and most likely just not being a fan of our friends, the aliens. And we know from prior episodes that you are a major alien fan. But Jay, also remember this. Product placement, as I said, was scary in the early 80s because companies just weren't sure how to quantify the potential impact. So after the rejection, Amblin turned to its number two choice, Hershey, and the marriage with Reese's Pieces was born. The details of the deal were reportedly said that the Hershey's company didn't have to pay for their product to be in the film, and in exchange, they would spend roughly $1 million to promote E.T. on a national stage alongside the Hershey brand. The result? Well, put it this way. Virtually overnight, Jay, Reese's Pieces went from an unknown afterthought to a worldwide obsession. Reese's Pieces saw a reported 65% jump in profits just two weeks after the movie's premiere. Now, while Mars is doing fine today, M&M's are still easily the most recognizable candy in the world, the failure to see potential cost them, most tangibly by enabling a competitor to reach a worldwide audience. And Jay, one of the most telling signs to me of how big this blunder was has been the lack of chatter about it over the years from Mars. Sure, the movie was a gamble, but I'm sure Mars knows it doesn't have much of a standing in defending its decision to not help E.T. phone home. So, E.T.'s from another planet. Can his stomach handle all the processed, you know, sugar and chocolate and everything? I feel like Reese's Pieces would straight think it was slowly poisoning him. Yeah, I mean... Well, as you know, as a major alien fan, aliens' digestive systems, we haven't even begun to understand them. And Jay, this is just one example of famous product placement. A few others. Seinfeld in the famous Junior Mints episode. White Castle in the film Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. Now, Krispy Kreme Donuts reportedly passed on that one. Wonder why. Oh, that's that's Ray-Ban sunglasses Kreme. in the movie Risky Business with Tom Cruise. And my personal favorite, FedEx in the Tom Hanks classic film, Cast Away. So, Dave, when we're talking famous houses in movies, what is one that kind of comes to mind for you? So, I love the movie A Christmas Story, and it has a very iconic house with the iconic leg lamp in the in the window. Um, but the Christmas Story house is a real house, and I believe it's in Cleveland. And every year they have a 5K race at the house, and I've always wanted to go. I just think it'd be so cool. So actually, most houses in movies and shows are somebody's house, which is something I didn't really think about a whole lot. I guess I just kind of assumed that they were created sets, and uh, then people just sort of shot around it and made it look like it was a house. And, you know, value can be attached to a house for a variety of reasons, but... 
Rarely when people buy a house that they live in, do they project the money the house can actually make them as revenue. Uh, But for those that buy houses in very specific neighborhoods, ones that are familiar to producers in Hollywood, there is the potential there to make quite a lot of money if you're willing to let a production set invade your home every once in a while. Uh, New Yorker Mary Kay Seary and her husband Billy moved into a Brooklyn neighborhood for $490,000 in 1998 and took advantage when flyers from production companies started appearing in their mailbox. And to this day, get this, Dave, the series report making nearly $500,000, including $86,000 renting out their house for the HBO show Girls and Mysteries of Laura on NBC alone. Grace Ambat, who rented her Los Angeles home for the production of the movie Argo, made $50,000 from the experience. And while some production companies will go through realtors and property companies to negotiate a fee, many just prefer to do it the old-fashioned way. Ryan Aikie and Sean Kane, who purchased their home on the north side of Chicago in 2016 for $850,000, received a flyer from a production company in their mailbox in September of 2019 and decided to make the call. This led to their home being used in the FX crime drama Fargo. And when I say used, Dave, I mean like really used. Like the set designers added wallpaper and then tobacco stained it to give it an aged appearance. (laughs) A set of swinging doors, an iron fence, and even a coffin and an organ for a funeral home scene that sat in the home for months. And due to COVID delays, the set remained in their home for 11 total months. And then it took another month for the crew to return to the home and return it to its original state. And while Aki and Kane can't report how much they were paid for the use of their home due to a non-disclosure agreement, both report being very happy with the experience and the payment. Now, non-disclosures are pretty commonplace for this sort of agreement. You know, homeowners may overhear plot details or find a stray script lying around. But fees can range depending on how extensive the renovation of the home needs to be, how long the production will take, whether or not a homeowner would need to be put up in a hotel for a time, all go into calculating the final number. So the industry rate is actually generally your monthly mortgage payment per day. So if you shell out 2000 a month for your mortgage, you're now raking that in for every day a production crew is using your home. How do we get on their radar? I mean, my house would be perfect for <laughs> a number of movies. Yeah, sell it here, yeah. Now, while money can be good in this kind of agreement, there can also be a downside. Uh, after an agreement is made that only certain areas of the home will be filmed, Oftentimes, production companies will go places that they said they wouldn't, such as the bedroom. Uh, Many also report lasting damage to particularly floors after a home has been used in production. You're signing away control of the interiors of your house or the exteriors, and you've got to be okay with it, says Banks McClintock, whose New Orleans home served as the interior of the Epps Mansion in 12 Years a Slave. You've got to be okay with mistakes being made. Things are going to happen. Cheryl McFeely, who is Mrs. Seary's neighbor, has hosted commercials and had her home featured in the 1998 film A Price Above Rubies and the film Half Nelson with Ryan Gosling. In 2015, her home housed the production of The Great Gilly Hopkins, for which she was paid $85,000. The money is great, said Mrs. McFeely, but after we had our floors replaced, we decided to stop shoots. We didn't want to damage our new floors. 
And while follow-up repairs attempt to fix most of these issues, sometimes issues do persist. Some production crews have been known to renovate entire bathrooms or kitchens for a film, only to renovate the space back after production. But it's not all bad. In addition to the checks, the cool factor of your house being used as a location in a show or a movie can up your property value long-term or earn you bragging rights. Production companies coming to town can also mean a boost for your local business economy. So how do you get your home used in production? Well, it's complicated. A producer or director may choose a certain home for a variety of reasons, from it fits the time period to the layout. But ultimately, Dave, it comes down to this. Does the home serve the story being told? But if you can break into that world and you don't mind relinquishing a little control, a huge payday could be in store. If you're a producer and you're listening to the show and you're looking for some houses, especially one that has a lot of recent plumbing issues, I'm going to go ahead and put my house on your radar. And Jay, this week we end here. Real penalties for theoretical crimes. Have you ever seen the movie or read the book Minority Report? Well, I've actually done both. Of course you have. I flex on you here, but uh, it was for a project. In college, my English Nerd teacher alert. had us do a project where we had to read a book that had a movie on it, and so I got Minority Report, and uh, so I had to read the book and then watch the movie and write a paper about it. Well, in the film, because I obviously have not read the book, surprise, surprise, Tom Cruise, now that's a double Tom Cruise reference in one episode of Commute. Man, that's a record. Tom Cruise works for a futuristic police force. In this futuristic world, the police use a psychic-type technology to arrest and convict murderers before they actually commit their crimes. And it's all smooth sailing until Tom Cruise himself gets accused of murdering a man that he's never met leading him to search for what's called the Minority Report, the psychic prediction that shows that maybe he abstains from murder. Jay, it's been years since I saw the film, but I think about it a lot. What if we could arrest people before they committed a crime? How would we, or could we, ever be absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, positive that they'd actually go through with it? Well, it may blow your mind to know we kind of already do this. According to recent reporting by The New Yorker, sting operations carried out by various levels of law enforcement, they basically set up criminals to get caught in the act before the actual crime gets committed, have been a major part of law enforcement for the better part of the last 40 years. And in some cases, like major drug busts, the penalty for getting busted in a sting operation can result in longer prison sentences than if the crime were actually committed. Meaning, basically, you can go to jail for a longer amount of time for planning to carry out a drug deal than you can for getting busted for actually carrying out a drug deal. And Jay, while these types of undercover busts do often nab very high-level criminals, they also nab individuals with little to no prior record. The New Yorker reviewed thousands of court transcripts and found that many of the crews that get arrested during these stings were not comprised of super high-powered career criminals. Oftentimes, they were groups made up of family members, acquaintances, even complete strangers, all of them thrown together at the last minute and without much thought. Often, these people don't even own guns to use during the act. And sometimes they only obtain a gun or a weapon after it's supplied 
by the undercover agents. But Jay, that freedom, the ability to enable a potential criminal to carry out a crime, is also what makes this form of law enforcement so effective. George Wagner, a U.S. Secret Service agent, wrote the following in a 2007 policy analysis. Compared with traditional police practices, undercover methods are relatively unhindered by constitutional or legislative restrictions. There are no clear legal limitations on the length of the operation, the intimacy of the relationships formed, the degree of deception used, and the degree of temptation offered, and the number of times it is offered. Jay, these types of undercover operations often take place at what's called a stash house. That's the place that people would meet to carry out the crime. They're built on the idea that there are people who break the law, and there are people who don't break the law. If you get caught up in one of these situations, the thought is that you'd have gone through with it if you weren't stopped. But going back to Minority Report, how can we always be so sure? Is there an alternate timeline for some of these folks where they back out at the last second? Legal scholars say that most of us are called probabilistic offenders, meaning, Jay, that we might break the law under certain circumstances, but we also might not. A sociologist named Gary T. Marks testified before Congress about this in the early 1980s, and Jay, I think he sums this up perfectly. Some of the new police undercover work has lost sight of the profound difference between carrying out an investigation to determine if a suspect is in fact breaking the law and carrying it out to determine if an individual can be induced into breaking the law. As with God testing Job, the question, is he corrupt, was replaced with the question, is he corruptible? So it kind of makes me think of To Catch a Predator, which uh, was this segment that ran on um, Dateline for years and years where police-associated groups would try to trap uh, people into these kind of like online relationships with people who they thought were underage, and then they would trap them in a house in a sting operation trying to visit the person. And that show eventually came to an end because mostly like a lot of these cases were just getting thrown out or they were, uh, these guys were ending up with like really small sentences or whatever, because of what you just said, like a defense lawyer could come in and argue like, Hey, this was a, my client could have backed out at the last second. They could have, you know, had some sort of other, they could have diverted to something else. They could have, you know, or whatever. And so a lot of these uh, yeah. guys didn't really get the kind of justice that, you know, you see the show and you're like, oh, this guy's going to jail and there's going to be this justice. And a lot of times that justice wasn't really happening. To Catch a Predator was hosted by a guy named Chris Hansen. And um, it, it'll be in a couple weeks, but I have a segment prepared on uh, a, a website called Cameo. And so on Cameo, you can order a, a greeting, a birthday wish, whatever, from a famous person. And if they're super famous, it's really expensive. And if they're kind of famous, it's not so expensive. And so for your 30th birthday, I ordered you a Chris Hansen Cameo where he was pretending to bust you and to catch a predator. And it's still possibly my favorite gift I've ever given anybody. All you, uh, like He even made fun of you for being an Eagle Scout. It was incredible. Uh, it was my favorite gift that I've ever received from anybody. I mean, there's been nothing like it in my life. <laughs> Thank you. 
That's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to please rate, subscribe, and review to the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. It helps us out a ton. Check us out on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week. How about on my script, it got auto-corrected to Tim Cruise. (laughs) That would have been nice.